John 9 is where we're at this morning in our study of God's Word. Please turn with me there. John chapter 9, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 39. And I'll begin our time by reading specifically verses 1 through 7. John 9, 1 to 39. If you're a guest with us, feel free to use the Bible in the seat back in front of you. You'd really want to see the text for yourself. And special thank you to Mark Mincy for preaching in my stead last week. Um, There were some health needs in my family with my grandmother, so I went up last week to go see her. And that enabled me to focus on the family while Mark was taking uh, the the weight of preaching. And it it ended up being a really cool experience because I sat there in the middle, like with uh, my family, and I was like, wow, so this is what it's like. I mean, Saturday was amazing. I'm like, I don't feel this weight for Sunday. I just get to come in and enjoy. And anyway, it was very, very good. But then, you know, it was kind of like missing not doing it. So it's like I lose either way or win either way. But you served us well from that passage. And I thought that for the church, it's really good for us to hear from the other elders because they can jump into what would be a real need in the life of the church. You know, John kind of has a similar theme. And every once in a while, we just need some direct talk. And I thought... What you addressed on relationships was very appropriate for this congregation in the season. So, thank you for doing that. John 9, 1 to 38. Let me read for you, beginning at verse 1, as we kick off this story. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back, see. If I wanted to begin the service in a very creative way today, I think that I would have us all close our eyes for a moment and imagine what it would be like to be blind. But I'm not going to have you do that. Because if I were to have you close your eyes, that would not be what blindness is like. Have you ever thought of that? What's it like to be born blind? The simplistic solution is to say, okay, when I shut my eyes, uh, it is like that, and yet you see something. You see black. You see dark. It's been fascinating to contemplate this this very week as you do research on those with congenital blindness, and uh, they don't have a frame of reference for even a color. Uh, Somebody said that the best way to actually understand what blindness feels like is to shut one eye and then ask what you see. So try that. 
You don't see black on the other side. You just don't see anything at all. Somebody likened it to trying to see with your elbow. What does your elbow see? Nothing. How do blind people dream? What do they dream about? In the interviews that I had read, it's not sight. There's no impressions. They don't have any faculty for that. They feel things. They hear things. But they don't see things. How weird is that? I mean, the crazy thing about someone born blind is that they don't even really know what they're missing. And such is the case with spiritual blindness. Some of you are so frustrated with friends and family who don't see Jesus. And what you don't realize is it's not that they're not looking at him. It's that they have no faculty for it. They don't even have the capacity. That changes the way that that we view those who don't see and savor Jesus the way that we do. But it also should stun us in our own hearts that we do see him at all. That we do appreciate him, that we do acknowledge that he is is Lord in some way. You think that's just kind of like common sense? or No, no, no. That seems really strange to a lot of people. When you talk about, oh yeah, I'm, just, I'm, I'm choosing to live for the Lord Jesus. I see him as the Savior and the ruler. People are like, what? I know that Jesus existed, but I don't see what you see. And I love that about this text. It leads us to consider Jesus as the one who solves sightlessness both physically and spiritually. Both physically and spiritually. The text today, it's very simple. It singles out Jesus as the one who solves sightlessness, both spiritually and physically. Now, you're going to think, well, of course, uh, this is physical, and it'd be easy to, quote-unquote, spiritualize or allegorize this and make it something spiritual. But hang with me, friends. You follow this story carefully. This isn't just me trying to be cute and creative as a communicator. It's the point. This thing, this story, these verses are not just about physical blindness being healed. They're about spiritual blindness being healed. And I think you'll see it as we follow through. There's three uh, movements throughout this, this story. It's pretty simple. If it's about the solve for sightlessness... You'll see the solve for the eyes in verses 1 through 7. The solve among the people in verses 13 to 34. So they're going to talk about it. And then there is the solve in the heart in the verses that follow, 35 to 39. It's really simple to follow. You already read about the solve for the eyes, and it's a rather fascinating discussion because it rides literally on the back of the previous discourse. If you haven't been with us for the last few weeks or you don't know where we're at in the book of John, maybe you've never read it before, we find Jesus at this particular point coming out of what I'll call the lion's den. Maybe all of you know that story from the Old Testament, Daniel and the lion's den. God put him in a place of attack to show his faithfulness and his sovereign protection, and so he came out Uh, Jesus enters the uh, metaphorical lion's den. He shows up at this famous feast for the Jews called the Feast of Tabernacles and doesn't do any miracles. 
he just starts teaching that he has this authority from God knowing that it would make the religious leaders really angry. And so for what seems like months now in this church, we've been studying how Jesus provoked these guys to anger to the point that several times they're trying to kill him. They try to enlist the Sanhedrin uh, to convict him. At one point, they get so angry with him. This was the last thing we saw. They get so angry with him that they pick up stones and they're going to like lynch him then and there. And yet he escapes that. And the two main things that made them so stinking angry were the claims that Jesus is the water of life, the provider of the Spirit. They're like, no, a man can't be the provider of the Spirit. The second one was that he's the light of the world, because for them, only Yahweh was the light. When he came and that that pillar of fire and led them through the Old Testament, Jesus saying, I'm the light of the world, they couldn't handle that. And then the one that really set him over over the edge was to say, hey, before Abraham was, I am. To claim that he is even more powerful than Abraham? That's ludicrous. And yet here, right in the context of that, that's the last thing we know. Jesus has made these huge claims. And you're like, all right, anybody can walk the walk, but who can talk it? I mean, excuse me, anybody can talk the talk, but who can walk it? Anybody can make these claims of himself, but notice, remember, he didn't do a single miracle in that chapter. So if he's going to make a huge claim like, I am the light of the world, he's got to be able to back it up. So there's an intentional connection between the discourse that we studied and where we are right now. And notice this, it is stunning. As we note this healing of the eyes, the blindness of this particular individual is presented. I think it stood out to the disciples, and it stood out to Jesus, and it should stand out to us that here we have a man who is suffering from congenital blindness. It is immensely rare. Even, uh, I think, of two of the most famous people in pop culture, at least here in the West, you've got like uh, Ray Charles and Stevie Wonder, fantastic musicians in and of their own right, and yet at some point both of them were even able to see. Now, one as a baby, the other as a child, but they could see. Somebody actually being born blind is immensely rare. It was rare in that culture. It is still rare in our own culture. And the natural, here's the natural thought. If you see somebody with that kind of blindness, you just have to assume that God must be cursing him. Because it was from birth. So either this man, some of the Pharisees would say, sinned in the womb, or his parents sinned and now they're being punished. This is called divine retribution theory. Maybe this line of argument sounds familiar from the book of Job. Remember, Job is a righteous man, like in in God's eyes, and yet his friends think, oh, you're suffering in these ways because you must have done something wrong. In fact, it's like 30 chapters of Job. It's nothing but his friends saying, well, you must have sinned in this way or you must have sinned in that way. It's a natural way for us to think. I mean, God does indeed bless obedience. God does indeed curse disobedience. So we follow that logically to the fact that somebody's suffering in a really unique way. And some people make the simple, logical step to say, oh, well, it must be that in every case of physical suffering, somebody did something wrong. But that's not the case. It's not the case. This is very important, friends. If you or you or someone you know 
as a child who is suffering from some kind of disease from birth, do not let anyone tell you or them that that is necessarily the consequence of a parent's sin. And this is your text. Sometimes God allows problems, sometimes God allows handicaps, sometimes God allows suffering to show himself strong. In fact, that's the theme of every book you've ever read. If you've read a fiction book, it had a plot conflict. There was some type of problem that was introduced, and ultimately there was some type of problem that was overcome. The author is going to show you through his narrative the ingenuity or the strength of the particular hero or heroine in that particular novel. So also God introduces certain conflicts to enable us to see how strong he really is. And so the disciples are representing the thought of everyone else and just thinking like, oh, A A or B, Jesus. Did this man sin or his parents sin? And Jesus is like, no, option C. This is for the glory of God. But notice as this problem is presented, there is a problem solved as well because he presents it. And then look at verse 4. He says, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. Jesus sees this as a particular opportunity. You know, the, the sun is up, therefore work needs to get done. And he needs to do the work while he's got the time to do it. I don't know if you recognize this, but Jesus showed up on this planet for the 33 years that he did to show us what God was like. If you want to know what it would be like for God to rule and reign in a person, you would look at Jesus. And everywhere he went, he was fixing problems in a unique way. So Jesus said, hey... This is going to be an opportunity to put God on display. I'm here to put God on display. I need to do this right now. We're going to do this together. Are you ready? And so in light of what he knows needs to be portrayed about God bringing light into the world, conquering the darkness, Jesus is about to act on God's behalf, on behalf of the one who sent him. And notice, he says in verse 5, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. He reminds them of what he said. The whole point of this sign is to single out Jesus as the one who is the light of the world, the one who gives sight to those who cannot see. And notice verse 6, having said these things, in light of the fact that he said this, he's going to back it up. Uh, in, In my house, I didn't even know this was such a big thing, but uh, YouTube uh, is now becoming like the entertainment choice of many young people because their parents are too cheap to buy cable, which I'm there. I don't buy it. <laughs> and so now, um, you know, when the kids aren't wanting to think about anything, we're left with whatever happens to be popular on YouTube, which isn't always terrible. Sometimes it's entertaining. And the way that you can actually find out which uh, channels or whatever you want to watch is by who has the most subscribers. So one of the most popular YouTube channels out there right now is this group of guys called Dude Perfect. Does any of you know who that is? I just want to see. Oh, wow. Okay. So obviously there's a lot of people who know who this is. If you don't know who it is, it's a bunch of dudes from Texas, and all they do are trick shots. You say, what's a trick shot? Well, it, it can be a basketball. You know, uh, it can be throwing a football through a tire. It can be... You know, getting a ping pong ball to land in a cup. Yes, I know that sounds like a miserable form of entertainment. 
and yet they somehow make it entertaining. I mean, sometimes they'll get on top of like the Superdome and like, uh, like shoot a basketball down into a basketball goal that's probably, I don't know, like 500 feet down. I mean, like it's insane the things that they do. And what's funny about it is every once in a while, they'll actually show you the behind the scenes because when you watch the video, you're like, these are the most amazing uh, basketball players in the world. You know, like some guy's walking off the court and he just chunks the basketball backward and he shoots it all the way across and he makes it. And you're like, wow. And they claim to be like, you know, they're the trick shot guys and they act like, all right, you know, um, they'll even name the shot. Reverse, uh, backwards, no look, full court shot. And then they do it, and then they nail it. They make the claim, and then they follow through. Here's the crazy thing. It takes them like thousands of tries. (laughs) Every once in a while, they do the the behind-the-scenes video showing that they're actually not as good as you think they are. They just try harder than most people. Now, what I love about this particular scenario with Jesus is he's going to make a huge claim, and it's not just... I'm the greatest trick shot basketball player in the world. He says, I am the light of the world. I dispel darkness. I enable people to see, people who have never seen in their life. And then he swishes the shot on the first try. It says, having said this, in light of the claim that he just made, look at your Bible, notice what he does because it's weird. He spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with mud and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam. And the guy went and washed and came back seeing. Um, If you think that that's a little gross, you're not alone. (laughs) Don't worry, you're not missing any contextual clues in in the Near East. Spit is just as gross as it is to us. In fact, I think it's even more gross. Because for us, it's disgusting merely physically to spit upon someone or to have spit come in contact with another. Sorry to be graphic, but that's what's in the text. It's also socially disgusting for us. God forbid, but I know it's happened. You get in a fight with somebody or you get angry at somebody. I mean, you've seen it. Somebody spits upon another person. It is a socially shaming event. But they're going to one-up us because for them it wasn't just physically gross. It wasn't just socially gross. It was ceremonially gross. Leviticus 15 in particular speaks to any type of, it's a word we don't use very often, excreta. Anything that comes out of your body is defiling when it comes in contact with another individual. And you know what that would do? It would keep them from being able to attend worship at the tabernacle. They couldn't even go. So if you spit on someone else, you had to go through a ceremony to even enter the presence of God. And what is Jesus doing here? He's going to spit on the ground, which would have been defiling For a normal person, certainly you would think that that's not going to bring about healing. That's only going to bring about problem. But Jesus is provoking their thought for a moment so that they can know who he really is. He spits on the ground, and then he makes mud with it. You say, why does he do that? We'll answer that question in a second, but I promise this on purpose. 
And then he anoints the man's eyes. The, the word for anoint, by the way, you'll like this for those of you who grow up in church. That the Greek uh, underlying root is uh, Christo. Christo, to smear, to anoint. When we talk about Jesus Christ, we say Jesus is the anointed one. He was anointed by the oil that represented the Holy Spirit. He was the prophet, the priest, and king. Anyway, so Christmas. Here we have actually this sense of this guy smearing this, this mud on his eyes, and which is a very public thing because now he has to make this trip down to the pool of Siloam, which, by the way, was the same place that the high priest would go to get the water for the ceremony of tabernacles. A place called Sint. Jesus, 17 times in the book of John, calls himself the sent one. So the sent one sends the sightless man to the pool that means sent. (laughs) And in that he says, wash, and the guy comes back seeing. And if this story were merely about Jesus being the one who can restore physical sight, it should end there. So for those of you who think, man, I already know this, I've got it, yes, Jesus can heal blindness, therefore Jesus can do anything. No, 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 you don't get it, because we're not even a third of the way through the story. Yeah, he heals the physical blindness, but here's the crazy thing, he's now going to disappear. There's no talk of Jesus for the next 20-something verses. Now we're going to analyze what this solving of sightlessness does among the people and in the man. Among the people and in the man. This is the next major movement of the story. There's the solve for the eyes. Now there's the solve among the people. How do they process this? What do they think is going on in light of what Jesus did here? What is the significance of Jesus healing this man in that way? That's the question that you want to be able to answer as you're reading through these few verses. Now, I want to move through several responses very quickly. There's going to be four of them, um, and this is good for note-takers. If you're not a note-taker, don't worry. Just listen to the story. It's cool. We're fine. But there's going to be the community. We're going to see a response from them. Then we're going to see the religious leaders. There's going to be a response from them. Then we're going to see the parents There's going to be a response from them. And then finally, the religious leaders bring him back in again and talk to him again. So what's the first response? Well, it's the community, and they're frankly confused. Confused. The community is confused by this because they've never seen this happen before. Uh, Look at verses 13, or excuse me, verses uh, 8 to 12. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar, remember, he had no means of income, so he had to beg. He was well known for being blind. They were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it is he. Others said, no, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. I love that. Uh, In the original language, he kept saying is imperfect. It means he had to keep saying and keep saying and keep saying over and over again, I'm the man, I'm the man. No, it's me. For them, it was so outside the realm of possibility for a blind person to receive his sight that they questioned the dude's identity. Like, it can't be him. This must be like his cousin or something. Come in from out of town. And so he's insisting over and over again, it's me, it's me. They finally believe him. And so they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? How? 
They knew that this had never happened. He answered, it's a very simple story. The man called Jesus, made mud, and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. Pause there for a moment. I want you to notice a very simple thing that takes place here. They want to know what in the world happened. All he knows is what he experienced, and he shares it. Very simple. Good thing for us to remember. People want to know what's going on in your heart and life, or people are so scared sometimes to talk about what Christ has done in them, through them, for them. It's, it's not fancy. You just say what happened. This is what the guy does. He'll do it over and over again. So he, he tells the story, and in verse 12, they said to him, where is he? He said, I don't know. So Jesus is gone, but that's for a purpose. He wants the people to process the significance of what took place. So they're confused. They don't know what is going on here, but notice the next group. There's a transition that takes place in verse 13. They brought, talking about the community, the neighbors, they brought to the Pharisees the man who had been formerly blind. You're like, well, what's going on here? Why are they bringing them to the Pharisees? Well, the Pharisees were the religious leaders of the community. You know how, like, for example, we have a hurricane that may or may not hit us this week. And some of you will stay up late and worry yourselves over this stuff watching the news. And you know what they're going to do? They're going to bring in a meteorological expert because they know that he knows how to tell you what's really going on in this. I mean, you live in Florida, by the way, folks. You shouldn't be surprised by this by now. And yet, we want to hear from the experts. We want somebody to let us know what's really going on. Well, in this particular case, they've never seen this before. Where do they go? They go to the leaders of their local synagogue, the Pharisees. This is a supernatural event. This is not a natural event. They're not going to a medical expert. I mean, in an age where bloodletting is like the main way to practice medicine, nobody really respects any medical experts. Frankly, there are no medical experts. So they don't have a medical explanation for this. They only have a religious explanation for this because this was a supernatural event. Super over and above the natural order. So naturally they go to their leaders in the synagogue, the guys that know the Bible better than anybody, and they say, you got to see this guy because we don't have a clue how to process what just happened. So this next group, the religious leaders, they're going to exhibit another response. If the neighbors are confused, the religious leaders, they're conflicted. They're conflicted. Notice this, verse 14, we find out a detail that we did not know up to this point. Now, it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. Stop there for a second. I made you a promise, and now I need to fulfill it. I said that I would explain to you why Jesus made mud and didn't just instantaneously heal him. Well, what you need to understand is that the Jewish people follow the written word of God, Torah, that's what it's often called, the book of Moses, but they also followed something else, Talmud. It was the oral tradition And it was basically an expansion of the laws of the first. So you know that there was Sabbath laws in place that said you weren't supposed to work on the Sabbath. But Talmud had actually added to that a bunch of other laws that protected that. 
One of those was like this entire list. It looks like something straight out of a legal briefing. This entire list of what work is. And one of the things that they had explicitly labeled as work was the kneading of dough. So if you were to take water and mix it together with something that looks like dirt and work your hands through it, that was considered work. That was breaking the Sabbath. Now, rewind the track back to Jesus spitting on the ground and kneading this ointment for this guy. He knows this the Sabbath. He is intentionally once more provoking these men and their fancy laws. This is what you would think. If indeed Jesus is a lawbreaker, if indeed he is a rebel against God, God will not bless this endeavor. God will not bless him spitting, which is ceremonially unclean. God will not bless him kneading some type of eye ointment because that's work. And he certainly wouldn't bless him trying to heal someone on the Sabbath when it wasn't something that was actually life-threatening. Therefore, like Jesus is testing the limits of what they will understand a true religious leader would be. And he passes the test in an unexplainable way. That's why they're conflicted. Notice how they process this. They know that he's broken their their Sabbath laws, but they don't understand how God would actually work in a guy like this. It says in verse 15, So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, notice how he's shorter this time. He's a little more terse. He put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, you've got two groups here. Here's group one. This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. All right, you get group one, right? There's no way that this guy's from God if he's not keeping our rules regarding the Sabbath. Their fundamental presupposition, sorry for the big word, but like the premise of their argument is that somebody from God would not break our rules. Our rules, notice our rules, not God's rules. They mix the two together. Here's the second group. Others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? Like they're sticking to the fact that this is the kind of thing that only God can do. I don't know if you picked up on it, but the reason why I asked Denny to read Isaiah 42 for us this morning was because that was one of those passages that point to what Life will be like when God's servant comes and rules and reigns over the earth. And one of the things that is specifically said about the servant of God being on this planet is that he will heal blind eyes. And so they're thinking in the back of their mind, only God could heal blind eyes. I mean, you remember Moses with Pharaoh? Like, Pharaoh's magicians could copy some things. They could do some seemingly supernatural things. I wouldn't put that past the prince of the power of the air. God isn't the only one who can work over and above the natural order, but here's the facts. There are some things that only God can do, and healing sight was one of them. So the second group is like, I guess he, he must be from God if he's the one doing this. So they're conflicted. They don't know what to do. And you know how it is when you get in an argument with somebody? Like you're going back and forth and back and forth and you're wrestling over the idea. And then there's like an innocent bystander standing there and they say, what do you think? You solve the argument. That's exactly what they do with this guy. They're going back and forth with one another about what this means regarding who Jesus is. And it says in verse 17, so again, they said to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? And here's what the blind man says. He doesn't know much. He says, he's a prophet. I think he's from God. The Pharisees don't like this answer, which brings us to a new group of people. 
Uh, do you know what a subpoena is? It's when you get called into court officially. <laughs> they subpoena his parents because they don't like the answer. And here's the deal. They can shut this whole thing down if they can prove that the guy wasn't born blind. Maybe this is all a big trick. I was mentioning uh, Stevie Wonder the other, just a few moments ago. This is fascinating to me. There's actually some conspiracy theorists out there who believe that Stevie Wonder is actually not blind. Their rationale is, man, he's such a fantastic musician. You know, we've seen him, like, respond to certain things. You know, I, I think the dude's blind. I, this is not the point of the message. But you get what I'm saying. Like, you could explain his musical genius. You could say, oh, he can really see. It's all an act. You could explain what Jesus is up to. You can wish away everything that would be threatening about him if you can say, well, he didn't really do this miracle. Maybe he wasn't born blind. So they say, all right, we're going to bring the parrots in. And here's what you need to know. Uh, I don't know if you ever heard the phrase, like, leading the witness. Like, they've already put the pressure on for the parents not to answer in a way that would tell the truth. You're going to see it. Listen out for it. But it seems innocent enough to start off with. Okay, parents, uh, was he really born blind? And now notice this third category of person who's processing this. It says, verse 18, the Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? Two questions there. Is this your son who was born blind? Second question, how does he see? Question number one, they answer, we know that this is our son, Two, who was born blind? I mean, I want you to think about that, mothers in here for a moment, like how insulting that would be for you to have wrestled through caring for someone with a disability their entire life and then say, has this all been an act? Have you guys been faking this thing? And yet they answer the question and say, no, he is our son. He was born blind. But notice their response is cowardly. They do not want to say what the son said, that Jesus was the one who made him see. Verse 21, but how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. And they put it back on him. Ask him. He's of age. In Jewish culture, you're a man at 13. Man, I'm glad it's not like that today. <laughs> you're of age at 13. So this guy's at least 13 years old, and they're like, he can legally represent himself. You ask him. And you're thinking at first, well, maybe they don't know. Maybe it's just they, they weren't there when the miracle happened. They don't know how it happened. But John, who interviewed them later, obviously knows what went down because he says in verse 22, look at the parentheses, his parents said these things because they feared the Jews, that's the Jewish religious leaders, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. The implication is that they knew exactly who it was, but they also knew that their local synagogue had already had a stated position against this man named Jesus, and if anyone confessed him as the Christ, they would immediately be excommunicated. And you're thinking like, oh, big deal. Uh, they don't have to go to that synagogue. They get to go to another synagogue. You have no clue how Eastern culture appreciates a group. 
Because you're, you know, we're, we're American and we're money-loving. Maybe the best way for us to understand it is that take away your driver's license, they take away your credit cards, they shut down your bank account, and then they say, okay, go do business. Social capital was capital. All of their connections, all of their relationships would have come through the synagogue. To have been kicked out of the synagogue would be to, disown, to be disowned by your very family. And so, although their response is cowardly, you can kind of understand why they wouldn't want to confess Jesus as the one who healed their son. The point is, friends, that even then there was an inevitable cost associated with seeing Jesus for who he really was, for confessing him. And such is the case in most places around the world today. Over 100,000 Christians a year being martyred for their faith, and the social cost can't even be calculated. So the parents exhibit a response of cowardice. But then the man is going to get called back into court, if you will. The religious leaders are going to now display another response, and this is verses 24 to 34. Notice, so for a second time, they called the man who had been born blind and said to him, and they're escalating their language here, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. Tell the truth. You're dishonoring God right now. Glorify God by telling the truth that we already know that this Jesus guy is a sinner. He broke the Sabbath. Therefore, he must have not been the one who healed you. In verse 25, he answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. <laughs> like the category of religious you know, status, that's up to you guys. I don't have an answer for that. But here's what I do know. That though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, and I want you to note the, the sarcastic, frustrated tone. I'll try to represent it well. I've told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? It's like, you really like hearing about this guy, don't you? Okay, you want me to tell you again? You just like listening to to Jesus' miraculous power so much? Sure, I'll tell you again. And it says that they reviled him. Reviled him, by the way, we don't use, I don't, anybody use the word revile in a sentence in the last week? I don't think so. It means they hurled insults at him. Now they just start making fun of him, mocking him, running him down, so you need to get the tone of what they're doing in response. This thing is just getting contentious. He says, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. We don't even know where he's from, which is a lie, because they already said that they knew he was from Galilee. At this point, they're just arguing. They don't even want to hear the truth anymore. And the man answered, and then notice the sarcasm here, okay? It was like on a scale of 1 to 10, it was at a 6, and we're going to be at like a 9.5. Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes? 
We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does His will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Notice that. This is amazing. This has never been done in the history of the universe, and we know that God does not empower those to do these types of things who are sinners, and you don't know where the guy comes from? They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and you would teach us? Notice, why do they say he was born in utter sin? They weren't saying, oh, all men are sinners, we're sinners, you're a sinner. No, they're like, you were the blind guy. You were the one that must have sinned in the womb. Must have been your parents that were sinners. You were born in utter sin. You're nobody. You don't teach us. You don't have anything to say to us. And they cast him out. And I want you to get the picture here. Because at this point, he is out on his own. His parents have identified with the synagogue. Now this man is alone. Quick, quick clarification. When the man says that this has never been done in the history of the universe, he's speaking truly. But I want to be clear with you. There had been other people up to this point who had been healed of blindness. In fact, there's a story in the book of Kings where uh, Elijah actually causes blindness and then he restores their sight. When this man's saying this, he's not talking about blindness being healed. Even the Jews had stories of blind people who were healed. The point is blindness from birth. Congenital blindness had never been healed. So the man knows on the basis of the evidence that he has to actually confess that this guy is from God to the degree that now he has no one or nothing. He doesn't have any money because he was a beggar. His parents aren't going to support him because they would be excommunicated from the synagogue. And now he has this curse upon him because if anybody does associate with him, um, he was the guy that was kicked out and they would suffer the same uh, consequences from the elders of that particular synagogue. But that brings us to the final movement of the story, and that is what we'll call the solve in the heart. There's the solve for the eyes, the solve among the people, the solve for sightlessness in the heart. This is beautiful, friends. Follow it. There's the ask that comes here in verse 35. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Notice that. He, he, hasn't, he hasn't seen Jesus This is fascinating. He never saw Jesus. He doesn't know what Jesus looks like. Jesus healed him by sending him away, and then by the time he got back, Jesus wasn't there. He knows Jesus' name, but he doesn't know what Jesus looks like. So Jesus comes to him, so this random, seemingly random guy comes to him, maybe he recognizes the voice, and says, do you believe in the Son of Man? Now, for anyone who grew up in Jewish culture, the Son of Man was an obvious reference Daniel chapter 7. Daniel 7 says that the Son of Man would come in the clouds. He would be this figure who would bring in God's end time age. He would represent the ancient of days in perfection. I mean, so he's asking them, do you believe in the object of Jewish hope, the Son of Man? And the guy's like, "Uh, yeah, (laughs) if I knew who he was. 
Uh, Look at verse 36. He answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Notice this. Jesus now ties his healing with his identity. Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. Jesus is saying here, do you believe in God's object of ultimate hope, the one who will bring healing for the nations for eternity to come? God's like, yeah, if I could see him, if I knew who he was, he said, it's me. It's me. And notice what the man does. He said, verse 38, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. The story didn't end at verse 7 with the healing of his eyes. It ends here with the healing of his heart. He knows now who the Lord is, who Jesus is, and he confesses him as such. And it says, and he worshiped him. For, for some of you, the word worship means, oh, that means he had a great emotional feeling. That is not what worship is. Worship in the Bible means to prostrate oneself before another. Even in Eastern cultures today, as a sign of respect, people will bend down and touch another's foot. It is a way of putting themselves low before another. This man gets on his face and he worships Jesus as the Lord, as the Son of Man, as the one who would come to right all that is wrong in the universe. He does not see him merely as some wonder worker. He sees him as the representative of God. And so the healing has come full circle. It isn't just about his physical eyes, but it's about the eyes of his heart. And I want you to catch this last verse. Here's where everything comes into crystal clarity. Jesus adds another statement before transitioning to a new discussion. Look at verse 39. Here's the point of the story. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who, may, who see may become blind. Jesus said, I came to give sight and I came to take it away. Those who could not see, those who realize they have need, I'm coming to give them sight. Those who think they can see, those who think they've got it all together, I'm going to make them blind. They will not see what they need to see to be eternally saved. Jesus isn't just concerned about the physical. All of this is just merely the solving of a sightlessness is a signal that he is the light. The son's solving of sightlessness signals that he is the light. This uh, situation reminds me of those words of Helen Keller. For those of you who do not know, she's one of the the figureheads of uh, that movement in the United States that helped serve those with disabilities. She could not see, nor nor could she hear. And she would attribute the, the changes that were made in her own life, despite her physical condition never changing, but the impact that she was able to have upon the entire world to this one teacher who would take the time to work with her and communicate on her behalf to the outside world. And these were the words that she said, Gradually, I got used to the silence and darkness that surrounded me 
and forgot that it had ever been different until she came, my teacher, who set my spirit free. I think all of us get to some degree that even someone with a physical disability can know the freedom of seeing that which actually matters. Keller was able to become a functioning individual in in a community. And yet in a similar way, whether Christ solves our every physical crisis or not, He does make it possible for all those who see Him with eyes of faith to truly see, to be able to function to be able to understand what matters in the world, to understand what kind of hope they can have in the face of death, to understand the reason why things the way they are. Christ is the one that provides some type of sight in understanding this world that is so cursed with darkness. And he does it in a few ways that I think are immensely encouraging to us as we bring this story to a close. Christ gives us sight in in three ways as we reflect on this text. The first way, and maybe write this down just for the sake of your own application and reflection, is Christ solves our sightlessness graciously. Graciously. He said that He comes to those who cannot see so that they can see. Do you notice what's going on at the beginning of the story? The guy didn't raise his hand and say, I need special help from the Messiah figure. He doesn't have a conversation with Jesus. Jesus just, in his kindness, goes up to this man who is suffering, sees him there, and says, do this, be healed. The guy did nothing to earn this. He simply responded in faith to what Jesus had sovereignly told him to do. It was a gracious work of the Lord. And here's the crazy thing about spiritual sight, is that you do not know you need it until you already have it. Like all of a sudden, God opens your eyes and you're like, oh, I I need Jesus. And it's those who think that they don't need Jesus because they're so moral or they're so good or they're so religious that we'll never see. I told you this before. I don't know how to define irony, but I know it when I see it, and that's ironic. Charles Spurgeon, the the great Baptist preacher of the 19th century, who did a very good job at like summarizing a lot of what Christians believe in ways that we can remember actually pointed out that this was a special act. He says, it is not our littleness that hinders Christ, but our bigness. It is not our weakness that hinders Christ, it is our strength. It is not our darkness that hinders Christ, it is our supposed light that holds back his hand. Friends, I want you to know that if you can see who Jesus is, and that's changed you in any way, it was not because of what you did. It was because he graciously intervened. And you should be willing to share that story. Can I tell you how this will practically impact the way that you reflect on this and talk to other people? Your personal reflection, I think it would impact you by giving you a joy that you otherwise would not have known. It'd be easy to think, Oh, I'm a pretty good person. My life's not that bad. I'm glad that, you know, I've, done some, I've made some good decisions for myself. I've, I've put myself in a pretty good spot. 
And yet what you don't understand is that like in the light of eternity, you would be groveling and blind and needy just as this particular man had Christ not enabled you to see. It isn't because you're smarter. It isn't because you're shrewd. It isn't because you're well-connected. It's only because Christ sovereignly decided to disclose himself to you. You just need to walk around with a little more of a humble spirit, especially among those who are unconverted, especially, by the way, let me just make this application, in social media realms. You were blind, but now you see. Friends, they're blind. Can you not treat them with the compassion that is called for of someone who cannot see? Which leads to that second point. It's good for you to reflect upon, but it also should reflect how you speak to them. You should be totally open about your past, by the way. Some of us are so self-protected. We want to be so uh, respected among the community. We kind of dismiss what we were like before Christ or what we would have been apart from Christ. We just need to own the fact that we would be totally self-interested, needy, dishonorable individuals if Jesus had not come to make us something different. Some of you have enough life history where you could be open about all the junk that you did and all the ways that you thought before Jesus intervened, and just just own it. And some of you who were saved at an earlier age, you need to just be open and honest about what you would be if Christ had not intervened. I think personally I would just be a sensual narcissist. I think I would be, apart from Christ, I would be living for sensual pleasure and I'd be trying to make a name for myself in this world through some type of business. And I could see myself, apart from Christ, like showing up to church every once in a while to keep peace with my parents. But just going to a place that would make me feel good about myself so I could continue to pursue what I really want, and that is making my name known and also feeling good in every way imaginable. That's what I think I would be like apart from Christ. Apart from Christ. But I was blind, but now I see. I don't want that. Friends, could you share that with somebody? We all have our own ways of exhibiting our spiritual blindness, but just own the fact that you were blind. But anything good that's happened to you happened because Christ radically intervened. Notice, he solves sightlessness graciously. Second, he solves sightlessness exclusively. No one had ever done this. Here's an interesting thing for you to think about. You're like, I didn't see it. I didn't see him solve, heal the blind man. I wasn't there. Well, everybody's choosing to believe something. Even these Pharisees, you know why they believe Moses? They believe that God showed up, talked to Moses on the mountain, empowered him in supernatural ways. But guess what? They weren't there either. They chose to believe the story about Moses. To them, it was a credible testimony. What they have here is credible testimony. They talked to his parents. They talked to the blind man. They talked to the people in the community. They had credible evidence. And on the basis of the evidence, it becomes clear. This is the only guy that's ever done this. And they choose to believe it. 
Friends, I'm just passing on the testimony of John and the witnesses. You can say, oh, well, I don't know. John was a little jaded. Well, Matthew speaks to it. Mark speaks to it. Luke speaks to it. Paul, a Jewish rabbi, spoke to it. The truth is, like exclusively, no one else has ever done this. And he's the only one that can bring about this type of change. He is the light of the world. Listen to me carefully. I say this respectfully. He is not a light of the world. The the matters. You say, I don't know that Jesus was that way. Yes, he was. He makes this exclusive statement about himself. And you either think he is a flaming liar, or somebody else is lying about him, or he is the one, the light of the world. It's exclusive. He exclusively solves sightlessness. He is exclusively the solve for the sin problem that plagues our own hearts in this world. Third, this solve for sightlessness not only happens graciously and exclusively, but it happens personally. Personally. I don't know if you recognize it or not, but Jesus didn't do this for a whole group of people. He did it for this individual man. And this is what the guy keeps saying over and over and over again. I once was blind, but now I see. I once was blind, but now I see. He just knows in his own experience that he was one way and now he's another, and he doesn't mind sharing that. My uh, wife and I were reflecting on this text yesterday, and we uh, I was talking to her about you know this this tendency that we have to to share good news that happens to us personally with anybody, like about anything. You get a great deal on a used car when like prices are high. I mean, you're like looking for an excuse to tell somebody else, like, "Oh man, you wouldn't believe the deal that I got." Or like some of you have like a good donut. You're like, "Man, you should try this donut. This is amazing." This will change your life. And Jesus, like, oh, I don't, I don't know if I want to share this with somebody because it might be offensive. Do you think they're offended when they hear about the great deal that you got in your car when they didn't get one or when they didn't eat the donut either? Are people offended over that? I don't think so. It's something personal for you. It's real for you. This is personal. This is real. Friends, it's not a hard thing. I think that a a great step for all of us here would be to have some confidence in being able to rehearse what Christ has done for us in our hearts if indeed he's truly done something. And it doesn't have to be long, by the way. I once was blind, but now I see. I mean, like, it's pretty simple. We, we sing of it often here. Maybe you just borrow the lines from uh, the song that we sing, O Great God, which is taken from the Valley of Vision. It's a collection of Puritan prayers. And I referenced this a few weeks ago, but it fits well here. You know, this simple testimony, I once was blinded by my sin, had no ears to hear your voice, but your love came within and enabled my soul to hear of your joys. Like, it's the amazing grace. That last line of the first verse, 
I once was blind, but now I see. Friends, that is personal. That is real. That is true. And you should be confident in sharing that. And so, I say to you that Christ does solve sightlessness. And if you so have the eyes to see today, I would invite you to come to him in faith as the one who suffered and bled for your sin, the one who rose again, proving that he is the bearer of eternal life and trusting in him alone, willing to face whatever the consequences may be and so walk in sight both for now and eternity. So we will conclude then